What's up, Duke fans? Welcome to the Devil's Den podcast. I'm your host, Josh Smith, joined by my co-host, Raul and Shu. Today, we got a special guest. We're uh, glad to have Brennan March from The Athletic with us today. Um, you're probably pretty familiar with this work if you've been following Duke or Carolina or anything in the Triangle. Um, he's also done some work in Sports Illustrated, the Boston Globe, the Baltimore Sun. Um, I'm not going to give his whole background for him. I'll let him speak for himself a little bit here. Um, but Raul really kind of got this in motion for us. He reached out to Brandon. He was willing to come on. So again, we're really appreciative for that. Um, as the season kind of gets really close here, we're starting to get some practices. We got media day. Me and she will be in Charlotte for that later this month. Um, but with that, Raul, I'll toss it to you and you can talk a little bit more about Brandon and then we'll, we'll get to hear from him. So your background is as a UNC alum. What years were you there? Uh, I was there 13 through 17. Okay, yeah, and I saw you wrote for the Daily Tar Heel at the time? I did, yes. That was my uh, journalism baptism, so to speak. (laughs) This isn't like a gotcha moment of like trying to expose you as a UNC fan or anything. I read, you know, a ton of your articles, and I'm always really impressed with the neutrality you're able to kind of convey. What's your approach with that? Like, how are you able to kind of distance yourself? Because I assume you were a UNC fan when you were there. So that's, yeah, kind of the interesting part is I did not grow up a UNC fan, um, not originally from the Triangle. I'm a transplant from uh, up north. And so growing up, I didn't necessarily have one team that I rooted for, but my dad was a huge basketball fan. So um, he he very famously, when we first moved here, bought UNC Duke and NC State shirts. So uh, <laughs> we were sort of all over the board and, and I ended up going to Carolina just because I got a full ride to go there. Um, and so kind of hard to turn down that, that sort of opportunity. Um, But so for me, I I was obviously something of a fan when I first got to Carolina, but pretty quickly joined the staff, the Daily Tar Heel. And um, I I hadn't had that long term fandom sort of, you know, embedded in me since I was a child. And so it was really easy for me, even from the time that I was like a freshman, uh, my second semester as a freshman, I started covering basketball games and neutrality is part of the deal there. So my fandom never really developed. Obviously, it was cool for me to see them go far in the tournament when I was in school because that meant that me as a student reporter got to go far in the tournament, which was crazy, crazy experience. Um, but the fandom aspect of it was never really there for me. The unfortunate, unfortunately, the only sports fandom I really have is for the New York Jets. Um, so, yeah, I know, tough, tough life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the neutrality part, certainly when I took this job and having to do both sides of it, that was something I was concerned about. But um, not having had that fandom sort of, you know, as part of my growing up experience is something that I think has made it a lot easier. And you were there for both a Duke and UNC title. So did you get to go to any of the UNC games in like 2016 or 2017? Yeah, absolutely. So I covered the team, uh, primarily in both of those two final four years. Um, I was not in Houston for the Villanova game for that final four, but I was, I followed the team throughout the entirety of the 2017 title run. Um, so, you know, the Luke May shot, um, you know, Gonzaga, that was a gross title game, but just being there for all of that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was obviously a great experience for someone my age at the time, just to be able to be around, you know, fellow professional journalists and whatnot. But, um, yeah. And, and obviously Duke UNC games, even back then were, were pretty wild. Has covering those two teams kind of altered your perspective on the rivalry in any way? For sure. And it's so funny because obviously having gone to Carolina, uh, my fiance went there. I met her there. A lot of my close friends or alums who I went to school with. Um, it is so interesting hearing their perceptions on the two programs from that fan mindset versus me being able to see their inner workings and see just how similar they are. Like it's crazy how similar mm. the two of them are in so many respects, like in terms of recruiting, in terms of their visits, in terms of you know how they approach sports science and whatnot, in terms of so many different elements. Uh, there is so much overlap. Obviously, there are specific differences that make each program unique, but both UNC fans who I know, who I tell them that, and Duke fans who when they ask me, they're always like, no, we're nothing like them. But <laughs> yes, you are. You're so much like them. So it's been cool to see the similarities and um, I try to explain them as best I can, but uh, that fan mindset can be tough to break through sometimes. Yeah, I imagine there's certain kind of narratives that come up again and again with fans that you kind of just roll your eyes at, like Roy Williams is evil because K is evil because or whatever, right? 
this player is a cheater, this player flops a bunch or whatever, you know? So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, when I was in school, it was everybody hated Grayson Allen and then hearing mm-hmm. it from the other side, everybody hated Roy Williams. And now, so the, the part I'm actually really interested in going into this year, and I know we'll talk about it more later, but um, I'm interested to see if the level of animosity continues for Hubert Davis and for John Shire that it did for Roy and for Kay, mm-hmm. because I, I love the animosity. I'm team petty, like bring it on. Um, <laughs> I, I hope that it continues to be chippy. I think it was, you know, at the end of last season. Um, so I, I'm rooting for that, but I'm interested to see if it tracks. So you mentioned that you had been to a couple Final Fours previously as a student uh, reporter. Um, you were down in, in New Orleans for the Final Four in April this year. How different was that compared to the other ones? For one, you have Duke and UNC both there. It was bonkers. I mean, uh, so I actually was in San Fran with Duke for their games against Texas Tech and then against Arkansas. And I remember after the Texas Tech game, you know, sort of having a phone call with my editors and saying, like, I think we should probably book this now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know that Duke is going to win against Arkansas. And I don't know that Carolina is going to get past UCLA. But I have a feeling that probably one of them is going to be there. Um, never in a million years thought it would be both. And, and so it was bonkers because of that. Um, I think also just like the collection of teams that were there. And, and if you were there as well, you can sort of attest to it. But um, the fan bases for all four of those programs was so, so intense um, versus, you know, the, the last Final Four that I was at in 2017. You had Gonzaga, you had Oregon's and, and the actual event was in Phoenix. So you had a lot more of those West Coast fans traveling down. Whereas New Orleans, uh, I mean, I don't think you could get a ticket for like less than fourteen hundred dollars once once both teams were headed there. Um it was interesting just to see how many Duke fans versus Villanova fans versus Kansas fans versus North Carolina fans, like the, the all the blue bloods. And um, as far as the intensity of the games, I don't even think that it's comparable. I mean, that the, the atmosphere before the Duke UNC Final Four game is unlike anything that I have ever been around. Um, you know, I've covered the Olympics, covered the NFL. It, it doesn't even compare. Um, I've never felt so claustrophobic in a room with you know, 80,000 people or however many people it was in the Superdome. It was it unlike anything that I have experienced and I don't think I'll experience anything like it again. Yeah, you know, we won our game first. And so I went ahead and booked uh, our tickets. Um, my wife is a Carolina fan. Um, and then obviously Carolina beat St. Peter's the next night. Uh, and I watched the ticket prices double instantly right away. Um, but speaking on the the atmosphere, I mean, this was my first trip in New Orleans at Bourbon Street. Just having those four fan bases, um, I'm actually my wife kept me from from probably picking a fight or getting in a fight. So I was trying to watch myself around there. But it was just it like you said, intense. That's why you bring her though to to try and prevent that. <laughs> sure, yeah, she was the the calm one there. So um, what did you think about it? You know, obviously. This was Kay's last go around. Um, so we knew being in, in New Orleans that one way or another, this was going to be his final game. Uh, any thoughts on just being there for that? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, for me, sort of starting probably the last week or so of February, all the way through March, I was on K Watch. You know, obviously there was so much emphasis going into the last home game. And then, you know, from a, from a perspective of me having to cover both, the obvious storyline was to go with Duke because Carolina sort of was up and down the entirety of the year. And yes, they won the regular season finale. But like, if I was projecting which team was going to be in the national title game, I I was saying, you know, from before the start of last season, I think Duke will be there. I never thought that North Carolina would be. Um, And so I was on K-Watch, you know, I thought Texas Tech could do it. I I thought the last five minutes, I thought Michigan State could do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't ever really think that Arkansas should. Um, You know, was apprehensive about maybe Gonzaga if that matchup had materialized. But then when it became apparent that it was going to be North Carolina Duke, um, I think some of the K watch, like as crazy, it was almost like it, it almost dimmed a little bit because it was just the, the overwhelming magnitude of the rivalry. Like that storyline had been so predominant. And then it, not that it was diminished in any way because it was still a huge point. And, you know, obviously everybody was keeping track of that as well, but um, it got even bigger. It, it got even bigger than just that individual storyline. So um, I, you know, I thought that the game itself was probably the best Duke UNC game I've ever seen. You know, up until then, the best one I think I had seen was the uh, Zion Williamson ACC semifinal game in Charlotte, um, yep. which was just a stupid good game. Five of the top 11 picks in the draft, six first rounders, like 
just one point game, game. One right. point game, I believe. Yep. yep. Yeah. And, and, and Zion was, you know, Zion Incredible. down the stretch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the game itself lived up to the billing, which is so hard to do, especially with how high circumstances were. Um, and for me, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's so much anxiety about, okay, you know, how am I going to actually capture all of this? And, um, the way that it played out, uh, it made it a little bit easier, but just the game itself was, you know, I, if I could see a Duke UNC game like that every year for the rest of my life, I'd be a very happy man. <laughs> sure. And Brendan, I'm not sure exactly how old you are, but it's kind of weird that this was actually the first time that these two teams ever met in the tournament, considering the success of both programs, you know, obviously, uh, Josh and Raul and I know that we almost met in 91 that, uh, Indiana kind of spoiled that. Do you think this will happen more regularly now? I mean, maybe I, I thought that it was going to happen. I thought if there was a year it was going to happen, obviously it was close in 91. Um, I thought 18, 19, there was a really good opportunity. And, you know, obviously I don't, I don't know if Zion was at full health and, um, North Carolina just got totally out outmatched in in their uh, meeting. I think that was the Texas A and M. Yeah, it got stomped by like twenty five. But I, I really thought that was going to be close. It's wild how many instances there have been of it being so close. Um, I'm sure it'll happen again. Do I think it's going to happen again with those circumstances in the Final Four with you know a hall of you know that sort of storyline? No, like and right. that's why it was so cool being there in the moment because you knew that even if it did happen again. This was the first. It had all the historic coattails. Um, I I hope it happens again. It was awesome to be a part of, um, but I'd also be cool if it took a couple of years before it happened again because it was stressful as all hell at the same time. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that part too. Like, just were you able to appreciate it like in the moment, or was you're covering the sport too? So sometimes when these kind of events happens, you're just like under deadline. There's pressure. It's Duke Carolina. You have a you know you got to get something back to editors, like. Does that set in or are you just able to kind of just be there? Do you recognize, I guess, like at the time, what, what's going on? I tried to. Um, I remember I had a conversation beforehand with uh, Sam Bassini action and he and I were both sitting there, you know, probably 10 minutes till start. Um, and I was like, I, I really don't know how this is going to go. Like, I'm so nervous. And he's like, that's, he was like, that's cool. That's fine. That's understandable. He's like, but when they're doing the announcement, He's like, don't type anything. Just close your computer. He's like, just, just take that part of it in because it'll be unlike anything that you've ever seen before. And he was totally right. And so, um, like you could feel like the blood in your veins when they're announcing the starting lineups, you couldn't even hear them because the crowd was so loud. It was so overwhelming. So, um, I definitely tried to take a moment, sort of how I would imagine the players do. They first get out in the court, they look around like hot damn, like we're actually doing this. Um, but then as soon as it starts, it's, you know, back to work mode as it was for them. It's back to, back to playing in the game. But um, yeah, I think the coolest part of this job is just remembering like it's fun, right? And you're supposed to appreciate all of these things that you see. And the, it's the incredible individual feats. It's the atmospheres. Like if you're not enjoying that part of it, then you shouldn't be in this industry. So um, I always try to, to take those moments. It's harder when the stakes are that big. But um, yeah, it has, it has certainly dawned since then as well. Just how lucky I was to have been there. For sure. For sure. And do you want to just kind of mention, you know, obviously last year was uh, a journalism major's goldmine with KU being in his, his farewell tour. Uh, how was that for you guys uh, as a whole, like just being able to put out a ton of content about it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think um, for me, it was a fun challenge because obviously there is so much that's just smacking you in the face. Like it's all the gifts that he's getting. It's the announcements and everything. Um it was actually really funny. I remember so vividly at the Champions Classic, starting the season, they're playing Kentucky, and uh, you know we're behind in the bowels of the stadium, sort of watching everybody walk out. And uh, he walks by, Co you know, Coach K and the whole team walk by, and you know, I, I gave him a fist pump. It was just sort of like, hey, you know, good luck this season and whatever. Um, very standard fare. And after the game, I remember him walking through, and he, uh, he, he, someone else runs up to him and shows him the like placard from Madison Square Garden. Um, which if we're ranking the gifts fell pretty low on the hierarchy of what he sure. received last year. Um, and just seeing him sort of be like, like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> like, uh, um, so seeing that materialize in real time versus like when they're at Louisville and like, he's getting like this beautiful, like Louisville bat and he's getting the, the bourbon, and, um, you know, some of the gifts, you know, seeing the scholarships that like, I think Q's did and maybe yep. Pittsburgh, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly, um, like seeing some of those things, like, you could see him start to appreciate them too much more over the course of the year. So 
you had all this stuff that was hitting you in the face, which was obviously interesting. But for me, I, I was trying to find things that maybe were not being, you know, told about. Um, you know, Wright Thompson's basically under, you know, underwriting every leaf that this man has ever walked on. But um, it was cool to try and find out a little bit more about him because as the year went on, the guard did come down, both from him and from the people around him. Um, and I think getting to some of the humanity of that, like at the end of the day, yes, he's, he's coach K he's, you know, arguably the greatest college basketball coach of all time. He's got all these records and wins and titles and yada, yada, yada. Um, he's also, you know, a guy who's been in the job for 42 years and has a hell of a lot of memories and whatever. So getting to go and hear about, you know, some of the personal sides of that, like, you know, finding out about his trips to Napa with like Grant Hill and, uh, some of his friends there and, you know, finding out about like these late night film sessions and like starting to get an idea of like how meticulous he was as a man and like some of the, you know, unique motivation tactics he'd take, some of which really landed, some of which did not. Um, it was just interesting to get into more of the weeds and, and the guard traditionally a Duke, as you all know, is not down like that. So, um, it was cool to get a sneak peek into that aspect of it, especially as it got later into the year. Yeah. So you spoke about his motivation tactics and, uh, you know, the guard that's kind of up. How, if any way, do you think Shire will differ? So, you know, Shire has been much more um, accessible, I would say, ever since I took this job. Um, he's someone who, if you needed some information about something, um, and anybody who covers the team can tell you this, um, but he was a guy who you could talk to, you know, before a game, you could go and have a conversation. He was a guy who, if I was working on a story or something, you know, you could call him up and say, hey, I've got XYZ here. Does this track? Am I on the right page? You know, am I missing something? And if I am, you know, what else do I need to look at? Um, and I, I do think that coming into this position, he obviously is not going to be that accessible anymore, but I do think that he's going to be much more than Coach K, you know, especially by the end of his tenure. Um, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that Coach K's focus was on winning and it was on the players. And as he said so many times during last year, like that was sort of it. Um, you know, trying to tell stories and spin the yarn and make, you know, that time for that had sort of passed mm. um, versus with Shire, you know, that, that time is still happening. Um, you know, I think he's going to have, you know, I've heard people ask me like, how long is his leash going to be? I, that's not even a consideration I have. Like, I don't think that there is a finite leash for him right now. Um, but I do think that it's interesting at the start of his tenure, he, he needs to sort of get, and people know him, but he needs to get his personality out there. He needs to get his inclinations out there. He needs to get his sense of humor. He's a really funny, dry guy. He needs to get that out there. And so um, certainly so far this summer, you know, Duke just had their media day. They are taking steps to, I think, um, not, not to promote him, but just to make him more accessible so people feel like they have that relationship that they've had for so long with Coach K. Um, so I'm interested to see how long that endures for. Um, I would expect that it would, you know, at least through this season, if not for the first couple. But um I, I just think the whole program is a lot more loose. And that started during the end of K's tenure at the end of last season and has only continued throughout the summer. Yeah, we've heard a little bit of the, about that from John Watson. He said that there's kind of a a new sense of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but just a, a better feeling around the program. I guess maybe verve. last year, it might be the verb. Yeah, yeah. The verb is <laughs> definitely higher right now. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, and, and Duke is private, um, you know, and they operated their business that way and they still will. And there's a lot of things that they keep in house. Um, but certainly sometimes it felt like you had to, uh, you were trying to get information from Fort Knox. Um, and now at least you're being taken on a guided tour through the facility. So um, it's obviously not as, you know, loose as some programs will be. And that's how they stay as successful as they do. Um, but certainly there's much more insight, which, you know, I appreciate as a reporter, as someone who's supposed to convey information. And, and I think a lot of fans appreciate that too, just getting to see a little bit further behind the curtain. So, so did they tell you that Dariq just had a lower uh, extremity injury or <laughs> did they actually specify <laughs> that he broke his foot? No, no. In the, in the release, they say <laughs> fractured foot. So you okay, know, those are perfect, some details yeah. that, you know, again, maybe it's a little bit more detailed than it was in the past. But um, sure. so I appreciate that. Do you have any sense of how Shire will be as a motivator? Um, cause obviously coach K was a little bit of a taskmaster with his military background and Shire seems a little bit more relaxed, but how do you think that'll translate when the kind of going gets tough? Yeah, I, I think the thing that he is really, um, hedging his bet with and the thing that I think he has clearly prioritized even before he got the job, but like last season with Jeremy and everybody, 
um, is the value of relationships and the ability to be harsh to people that you are close to. Um, you know, you guys know if you've got really close friends and you're, you know, dating somebody and maybe they're not the best fit for you, you need people in your life who are like, Hey, bad news, like get out. Um, I think obviously it's not going to be that situation, but if he has that close relationship with them, which I think he does, and it's not friend, it's not peer to peer. It is still coached to, you know, um, you know, a superior and, and, you know, sort of a subordinate. Um, but I think having that relationship is going to allow him to be more uh, transparent without maybe having as much of the taskmaster fear experience element of things. So, you know, if Jeremy Roach is not playing up to snuff, I think he has that relationship that's been honed over the course of the last year and change and can go to him and say like, Jeremy, I've seen you play better. This is when you play better. This is what you're not doing well right now. And I need more from you. Um, and I think that's the reason he got that job because he has the ability to have those conversations, but he also has the underlying relationships that allows him to do that. So, um, I think that's the way that he's going to sort of stress accountability. And then obviously, you know, I'm interested to see what the rotation looks like, but the bench will be his friend. If somebody's not holding up their end of the bargain, see ya. You know, I think we were all so close to, and you know, the guy who comes to mind first and foremost for me, the last couple of seasons was Joey Baker, but like you make a mistake. Welcome back to the bench, my friend. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that that is going to be something that that diverts. I think that's a tactic that he's going to continue as well. And, um, you know, playing time is the best motivator for a lot of these guys. So that, those are the two things. It obviously has to be different. He doesn't have the wealth of experience or the military background that Kay has. Um, but I do think there are still ways he can hold them accountable. And um, a lot of that is based on trust. And uh, how much do you sense that he was taking on greater responsibility last year as he knew the transition was happening and Kay knew the transition was happening. Definitely more so. Um, not immediately, but by, you know, November, December, certainly. Um, obviously he had to step in for a couple of games and do some actual coaching, which is great experience. But, um, in the summer, he's the one planning the recruiting meetings. You know, he's doing the same thing that he's doing now. He was doing that last November in terms of, okay, here's where we stand in 22. Here's where we stand in 23. This is what 24 looks like. Like he was doing that during the course of last season. And that was a, a discussion that he and coach K had and coach K is like, Hey, you know, it's your program. Like it's, it's disingenuous for me to be a part of that, which is obviously a large part of the reason they did the secession plan the way they did. Um, but the thing that I thought was really interesting is, you know, they would have staff meetings on a morning after a game or whatever. And, you know, he's a participant in the meeting, like usual, then after the meeting, he's staying behind sort of like a professor in office hours, like, you know, Hey, you said this and this to this person, like you maybe, um, you know, cut somebody up because their scout didn't, you know, account for X, Y, Z element. Like, how did you decide that you wanted to talk about it the way that you did? How did you decide? And, and even as small as small linguistic things, the order of operations, like those were things that he had the foresight of being able to ask last season. And I think that they may seem small, but you know, he was putting himself in the position he's in now a year ago and saying, okay, if I'm in this meeting, I've never had to leave this before. I've never been a head coach at any level before. I don't really know how that's going to look. I'm going to take a lot of what this guy is doing. Let me ask him about his process. And then if I agree with his process, I will incorporate that. And if I don't, I'll find my own way. Um, and like, I think a lot of people are expecting he's going to be perfect from the gun. He's not like, he's going to make mistakes. Um, there are things that he's going to delegate that maybe he shouldn't. There are things that he's going to do his own that maybe he needs to delegate. He's going to have things in scouts that he used to do that he expects from his coaches and they're not used to. Um, they're going to lose games. <laughs> like all of these things are going to happen. I think people are expecting perfection from the jump and that's just not realistic. Um, and for me, it's a really interesting perspective to see how his transition goes compared to the other school that I cover and how they did it because I got to see the mistakes that Hubert Davis made. And there were a lot of those, especially early on. And he had to correct those. So I'm interested to see if there are fewer of those on John's end because of the last year's worth of experience rather than one guy dropping the mic, the other guy picking it up and just having to run straight away. I guess that's a pretty good transition to talk about this year's team. Josh, I know you had some questions about that. Yeah, I want to start just by mentioning the article you wrote on Jeremy. Obviously, he's kind of the main guy coming back, um, you know, entering his junior year. He's had a really kind of turbulent time at Duke coming in during a pandemic. Um, 21 was not a very fun year for Duke fans. Probably wasn't fun for them staying at the Washington Duke, not even really being involved. 
Um, so to have him coming back is going to be so huge. You, you mentioned that a little bit. What is that going to be like for John having Jeremy there? Like, how does he see that, that kind of relationship play out on the floor? Yeah, I, I think it's twofold. I think one, um, you know, John's got 11 new guys and he needs anybody he can who can sort of carry the culture along. Um, so just having anybody who's experienced is valuable. You know, like not that Jalen Blakes is going to play a huge role this year, but in terms of Jalen Blakes talking to a Tyrese Proctor or talking to a Jaden Shoot and being like, hey, this is the standard. Like this is how much work you have to put in to be able to warrant minutes. Like certainly that is happening. Um, in terms of a basketball sense, if you wanted somebody who was coming back, if you had to pick one holdover from last year's team, you would either want the most talented guy or you want the guy who's putting everything together. And he got the latter. He got the guy who's going to put everything together. He got the, the floor general. He gets the guy who's going to incorporate everyone. And I think the way that this Duke team is going to play this year really plays to Jeremy Roach's strength. Um, as an individual ISO scorer, is Jeremy Roach going to set the world on fire every single game? No, he's not. But is Jeremy Roach as a scorer and distributor who emphasizes ball movement and whose skill set meshes really well with having corner shooters like a Jacob Grandison and having lob threats like a Filipowski and like a Lively? I, I think it's a perfect fit. Um, and, you know, in that story you're talking about, if you go and you look at Jeremy's, you know, pure scoring numbers on a points per possession basis and synergy, they are good, fine. They are above average, but they are not exceptional. When you incorporate his assist numbers into that side of the equation, they are exceptional. You know, he's in the top 10, 15 percentile in the country in terms of points per possession on a points and assist basis. So um, I think John is really going to lean on him to sort of set the tone. And I think that John needs him to be a guy that, you know, if some of these freshmen are maybe not putting in the work, or if there's a game where they start lackluster in the first four minutes, he needs Jeremy to be the guy in the huddle that can light into somebody, um, you know, and maybe provide some of that because he, again, he he's relying on that trust. And if you're too harsh on somebody and you're always riding them and you're always grinding them, it changes the nature of that relationship. So he needs Jeremy to, I think, hold those guys to accountability, teach them self accountability as players. Um, so in, in both of those respects, it's, I, I think some Jeremy is, I don't think he's the best player on this team, but he is 100% without a doubt, the most important. Mm. For sure. And we saw him kind of get unleashed in the tournament, right? We saw that kind of um, player empowerment really come to fruition where he just really had the green light to get into the lane. Um, the Texas Tech and Michigan State games come to mind where we're playing probably not just the top defense, but one of the historically great defenses, right? That no middle and roaches in the middle all night. And exactly. so that level of um, just letting him play his game, having John there being a guard too, I would see that hopefully really manifesting itself. Um and also, I'm curious too, it's a very young team, um, but you mentioned John switching from the assistant coach, which can sometimes be more of the like, grab a guy by the shoulder after you just got undressed by the head coach, right? Let me take you under your wing. Do you think that could be an advantage for John of not having that many guys to where you're having to like enmesh a different role and all of these, everyone, but pretty much Jeremy and Jalen, they just only know him as head coach? Right, yeah. I, I think that, um, th again, the experience as an assistant coach and being able to pull those guys aside because that was, you know, not hit his role specifically, you know, Chris Carroll did it last year. Nolan did it last year, but like, yeah, exactly what you're talking about. Like, um, you know, one game that, that stands out to me pretty vividly is the Virginia game at home where Mark Williams, uh, sort of got lost on the last inbounds play and Virginia hits the buzzer beating three. And I remember in, in the press conference with coach K afterwards, you heard so much like, displeasure obviously that you know it was essentially a mental error um you know john is one of those guys in the aftermath who's going to go up to mark and be like hey you know what you did wrong he already has told you what you did wrong you're aware of that but we need you man like we need you to be this guy we need you to continue getting better and um so i do think that he's going to be able to do that like i i don't think he's going to be MFing everybody the same way that maybe <laughs> Coach K would. Um, but certainly he's going to have to be harsh sometimes. And the role and the responsibility he has has changed. So uh, I, I do think that having that longer experience as an assistant and being able to pull guys out of it individually is going to be really important. Um, and then, yes, same, the same idea you were talking about in terms of being a guard and, and knowing what it takes to empower one of those, like, you know, the, the easiest stat that, that I sort of go with is, in the regular season, 
Duke was a better offensive team on a points per possession basis with Jeremy Roach on the bench than it was with him in the lineup. In the postseason, it flipped. They were better with him on the court than they were with, with him on the bench. Um, and that's because he wasn't powered. Like you said, I, I personally, I think he was the third most important and you can make the argument second most important person during their run to the final four. Like obviously, uh, Paolo was a single, you know, he was a wrecking ball and Mark Williams was terrific in terms of rebounding and everything as well. But Jeremy was the guy who again made everything go. And, um, I think the personnel, again, I, I think the personnel that Duke has this year really facilitates and lends itself nicely to him being able to play in a similar way. And I think the fact that when John and Nolan and those guys won their title in 2010, um, yes, you had this big three sort of deal. Um, but in terms of knowing who is going to be the leading score every night, it could have been any one of the three of them in terms of knowing, like, if there's a hot hand to keep feeding that guy, that is something that he has lived through as a player. And so I think having that experience, certainly um, on those nights where maybe Jeremy shot isn't falling or he's having trouble finishing uh, or, or, you know, the three point shots not falling, he's going to be able to say, look, I've been there. I've done this. You have guys around you. It doesn't have to be you. You don't have to press. Um, and, and that's going to be really valuable because they do have a number of different guys who can hurt you and can, you know, fill up a box score any given night. Yeah. It seems like one thing that could help is having Tyrese Proctor on the team. Um, you know, call him whatever position you want, but he's played a lot of point guard. If there's a matchup that's not working or Jeremy's struggling for some reason, he can kind of be that secondary facilitator. So I kind of wanted to ask you what you're hearing about him since his arrival, because obviously he got to campus a little later than other guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Proctor is sensational. And I think that, you know, even before Trevor Keels made his decision, um, when this was sort of being discussed between Proctor's family and him and the staff, um, you know, the guy's not reclassing to come in and play 10 minutes a game off the bench, right? He's coming in to play. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think the thing that's best about him is sort of what you were just saying there, Raul. You can call him whatever you want, but but the guy can play multiple positions. Sort of similar to last year, there's going to be multiple ball handlers this year. Like Jeremy Roach, I think, is at his best when he's on the ball and he's making those decisions um, just because he is a good decision maker and sometimes can struggle in terms of the actual offensive output. Like sometimes the three-point shot is not falling. Sometimes some of his finishes are, are not ideal around the rim. Um, Proctor is a guy who I think can come in and offer you a different look and, and who presents a defense with different challenges because he he also is a is a very intelligent high IQ player, but maybe does have a little bit more athletic pop than Roach does. Um, I, I think that as a passer, you know, Jeremy maybe has you know uh, a little bit more experience, obviously. But Proctor's vision is insane. I mean, the dude sees things that you just can't see. I was talking to Jaden Shoot one on one at the uh, media day a couple of weeks ago, and I was asking him like, you know, what what's it like playing with Tyrese so far? And he's like, it's great, but it's also kind of daunting because I always have to expect the ball. He's like, even if he's on the other side of the court and he's looking into the stands, that ball could be coming to me. So I got to always be ready, um, which I think is something where, you know, Duke needs that. They need to have somebody who can move the ball like that. Um, the other thing I'll say about Tyrese is he is bigger in terms of strength and length than I anticipated that he would be. Um, from having seen him in person, having seen him, you know, in an offensive, you know, setting where he's slashing uh, at practice, having seen him in a defensive standpoint where guys are trying to defend him, like let's not forget, he's six five, and the wingspan is even longer. Like those are tools; those are very valuable. And so um, he's explosive as an athlete. He's a great leaper, but really the strength is is just really surprising when you see him in person. Um, so I. I don't know that he's going to start every game. I think this is going to be a, a situation this season where there's a fluid starting lineup. You know, I think some games it could be him. Some games it could be Grandison. We'll see if Derek Whitehead, you know, I think he'll probably be back for the season opener. But if he's not and you want to take your time, you know, you can use Proctor a little bit more. Um, but he's a guy who to me is going to be, you know, one of the most important players on the team this season. He has to be one of their better three point shooters off the jump. Um, and depending on how well he plays, yeah, this might end up being his only season in Durham. Absolutely. The, the, the pro potential is certainly there for him. For sure. You mentioned starting lineups. So I guess that's a pretty good segue. I think all, all the, that's a big fan thing over the summer, right? Of let's all kind of get in here and create our starting lineups. Um, you talked about the, the backcourt a little bit. The front court is also kind of an interesting dynamic where you have the idea of, do you play the two traditional bigs and Filipowski lively? Ryan Young has really impressed a lot during these practices. Um, but the, also Mark Mitchell is a guy who kind of maybe came in a little under the radar, but just seems to fit 
and offers a ton of defensive versatility, um, really seems to be able to thrive playing that four. If you were kind of, as we're sitting here on October 6th, if you were going to kind of set your ideal Duke starting lineup, who, who makes that, who makes the cut? Yeah. I, so the way that I have posited this to fans and also just talking to other reporters is there's two locks. Roach and Lively are locks, like they're starting. You need that rim protection. You need that true big. You need someone who's got that energy. And and I, let's not forget, Derek Lively is their best floor runner they have, you know, big or small. Like the dude just gets after it in transition. He is going to score so many easy points that way. Those are the two starters. They're locks. You can mix and match the three in the middle, but those guys have to be there. Um, I think that Duke is probably going to slow play Derek's return. Um, you know, they're maintaining that message outwardly. Um, and talking to people, it, it doesn't seem like this is anything they're necessarily rushing. Um, you know, again, this is a team that's going to be learning and changing and roles are going to be sort of fluid through the first couple of weeks. Um, but to me, I, I don't think that you cannot start Proctor. I think that he's too good. He's too enticing as a passer. Um, he takes the pressure off of Jeremy a little bit because let's not forget, like, yes, Jeremy's very good, but as the only returner from a final four team and you're the junior who's being asked to lead all these guys, like that's a lot of pressure. Um, I think having Tyrese out there at the same time as him removes some of the impetus for Jeremy to have to feel like he's pressing all the time. So I would say that Tyrese, I think will probably start. Um, Jacob Grandison, uh, is, is the ideal role player for this team. Um, you know, he is a, he's one of the most prolific corner three point specialists specifically, which just again, fits perfectly with Jeremy's game. Um, but also he's somebody who can defend. He's somebody who's going to get you rebounds, you know, at the two or a three, or if you want to play him as a small ball four, that's fine. But, uh, the dude just is a, is a cog in the machine. And I think that's going to be really valuable. Um, the four is the most interesting position to me, because I think that if you're talking about that lineup of Roach and you're talking about Grandison and you're talking about lively, like where's all the skill coming from. And so I think for that reason, if you're playing a starting lineup that includes, Lively and Mitchell and Grandison. I don't know that you have enough creation and penetration. Um, I think you just need a little bit more skill in the court at the same time. And while, while I will say that I think Mark is being supremely underrated, I am not at all surprised if he starts this year. Um, I think he, I'm on record as saying, I think that he's probably going to be Duke's best defender this season. Um, he's that active and that long and that athletic. I just think that having Kyle out there gives you some more options, um, especially offensively. The question is if he is viable defensively playing alongside Lively when you have to have him out on the perimeter. And from everything that John has said outwardly and inwardly, um, Duke is going to switch this year. And so can he keep his match? You know, Can he prove his worth on the defensive end around the perimeter? I think that's going to be the real determination who starts and who doesn't, because um, especially at the start of the year, defense is going to have to be the bedrock of this team. And um, Mitchell, like I said, is going to be a guy that you can sort of switch seamlessly. So, uh, that is the most interesting position to me, but yeah, sitting here on October the four or sixth, I, I would probably go Roach Proctor, uh, Grandison. If Derek is not there, if Derek is back, then obviously Derek and then Kyle and, uh, lively to round it out. Hmm. Yeah. You mentioned Grandison at the four is option too. So if, if Derek's healthy, you could run both, right? You could run kind of a small ball flex out there. And it's also interesting too. I've, I think a lot has been talked about a Proctor. Should he be in that starting lineup? Can he be this guy to come off the bench and be that, you know, giving the ball and let, flip it around? But with John specifically and Duke's last two title teams that he's a part of, both ran dual point guards, right? He had no one with him. Um, and then in 15, obviously you had Tyus and Quinn Cook together. So I'm curious if just with that, if that's how he wants to play, if that's how he likes to play, we're going to see a lot of Proctor and, and Roach and maybe even a lot of Roach and Blakes or Proctor and Blakes is, is just to keep that ball handling at the front. Um, last question, I guess, about this season team, and more of a kind of a global thing too. John has, to me, very intentionally tried to make his mark early on, brings in Jay Lucas, first assistant, first coach outside of the Duke kind of family or tree since probably the mid to late 90s. Um, and then again, just, I think yesterday names Grandison a captain, which I believe is the first kind of incoming transfer that's been named a captain ever at Duke the first year. How much of that is intentional? How much of that is just the changing landscape of college basketball? It's a different world out there now with this portal. Yeah. So just one minor thing, uh, Grandison's not a captain. 
it is just Jeremy Roach. Um, okay, so you're just that, bringing him to media day then, not as an official captain. Okay, right. And I don't know if that has come out yet, but I believe you know by the time this podcast is airing, it will have come out. Uh, that Jeremy Roach is just going to be the lone captain this season. Um, but still, point stands. They're bringing Jacob Grandison to media day um, at, for a guy who's only been here a couple of months. That's crazy. Um, bringing in graduate transfers who are not just going to be bit players, but key contributors bringing in Jay Lucas. Like I think that John is showing that he appreciates diversity of thought and that is the most Mm -hmm. valuable thing. And, you know, if you think back to when coach K got a start in the eighties, like that was very valuable for him too. Like thinking positionlessly thinking about, okay, you know, how can we do things? Uh, maybe we're not constricting guys to play one certain role. Like, those are the John understands where basketball is going today. And he understands that, especially on the recruiting trail, if I'm gobbling up all this talent, maybe all the pieces don't fit in a conventional one, two, three, four, five manner, but that doesn't mean that they can't fit. You know, that's the same thing that I think we're going to see this season. Like we're talking about all these different lineup permutations. Is there a lineup out there where everyone on the floor is six, five or taller? There is like, there is a Proctor, Grandison, Whitehead, uh, Filipowski, Lively lineup. Is there a smaller lineup with like Mitchell as a small ball five and Roach, mm. Proctor, Grandison, and Whitehead? <laughs> yes, there is. So I, I think he is really stressing and loving the versatility. And it's something that he learned from Coach K, but he's, he's taking it to a new level. And um, for someone who is as smart about the game and who understands the X's and O's as well as he does, I think that John also understands what he doesn't know. And being smart enough to know when you don't have all the answers uh, is an incredibly underrated tool, especially somebody as young as he is and somebody who has had the, the lineage and tutorage that he has. So he very easily could have been like, hey, I learned from Coach K, learned from the best. That's how he did it. I'm going to do it the same way. Cool. Could he have hired another Duke guy instead of Jay Lucas? Absolutely. 100%. But he intentionally sought out somebody who would offer something different, who offers a different experience. Um, and, and somebody who he's clearly trying to say from the get-go, like, I want these guys to eventually become head coaches. Like, he's trying to encourage that. Um, he's not afraid to indulge some of these young thoughts and uh, experimental ideas and lineups and things. And um, I, I think that's one of the things that's going to be a big strength for him this season and going forward. But it's very intentional. He has to establish his own identity. Um, Obviously, there are going to be so many things about Duke that, you know, when you say Duke basketball, people are still going to think Coach K. That's not something that's going to go away for a couple of years. But um, that sentiment we were talking about earlier of being looser and just it, it's different. There is a different aura around the program. He had to proactively foster that because otherwise uh, it would have been about, OK, John is just stepping into the same chair as K and doing the same things, doing things the same way. He doesn't want to do that. And he's smart enough to know that he can change things a little bit. For sure. And I'm curious too, from your perspective, bringing more of kind of the, the, the neutral, obviously as fans, we can sometimes overhype ourselves, right? Get a little ahead of ourselves. We've talked a little bit on this podcast, just expectations for the season. I think most of us are kind of around, you know, a top three or four finish in the conference, trying to make that, that second weekend, sweet 16 style of team. Where do you see this team? Obviously the talents there where they could make, you know, a final four run, but just being more realistic, where do you see this team kind of fitting out? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you're right there in the ballpark. You know, I I don't I think that North Carolina is probably going to be picked first in the conference. Um, that they, they would be who I would pick first in the conference. Um, but I think that you know in February Duke should still be in contention to be winning the ACC in the regular season. I think that they have an opportunity to win the ACC tournament title. You know, they especially like if this is a team that gets bounced in the first round, I think people are going to be upset. Not saying they got to be a one or a two seed, but like, yeah, this is a team that definitely has the talent where they should be winning a couple of tournament games. Um, you know, I, I think the thing that people need to realize about John is that he's coached these few spot instances against Wake and BC the last couple of years. But like, what happens if Duke gets smacked in one of these non-conference games? Mm-hmm. You know, what happens if it's like a reverse Zion champions classic sort of deal against Kansas? I don't think it's going to be, but what if it is? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that I think people need to be prepared for. It's just so much newness with him. It's so much newness with the players. And like, um, you know, I, I remember talking to Chris Carwell about this at media day too. And he's saying like, we turn guys over. We regularly have a lot of different players. He's like, but 11, he's like, I got to go in the locker room and make sure like <laughs> that I've got all 11 in mind. Um, just because it is so new. So certainly there are going to be bumps in the road and, um, I, you know, again, for me, I, I just compare it to the North Carolina situation last year where 
Is Was there talent there? Yeah, clearly. But Hubert Davis had to go through some things that did not work. He had to try some things that did not work. You know, maybe Shire comes out and he runs a certain starting lineup and it's not as efficient or not as effective as he thinks it needs to be. He has the leeway to, to change that up and he will, but he needs fans to understand that it takes time to sort of get that down. And um, just as Coach K said last year, even into January, they were still trying to figure out how to fully integrate AJ and try to work out the rotation between Trevor and Jeremy once Trevor got hurt. Like, John is going to have to deal with those same sorts of questions. He just isn't going to have the wealth of experiences to fall back on. So, um, yeah, I, I think a sweet 16 finish would be a really successful first year if they can nab either the regular season or the tournament title even better. But, um, you know, they're going to be a top 15, top 20 team all season long. And so long as they don't let some of those, you know, they are going to lose as long as they don't let those losses snowball. I, I really think that he's going to be fine. I, I have really high expectations for him. Yeah, and the schedule's brutal too. So yes. that's kind of why I asked you about motivation earlier. Is like, what happens if they lose two non-conference games and one is a, an embarrassing loss? How does he deal with that? You know, Coach K, I think his tactic would have been to have them run sprints or lock them out of the locker room or something. Take all the I, new it, gear. Yeah. It seems like John might go more towards like a gentle encouragement, kind of prop up their spirits a little bit, especially with a younger team. I yeah. don't know what your sense for that is. Totally agree. A younger team and a newer team as well. You know, if, you know, he's got guys like a Proctor who have only been there since the end of August, like, you know, if they've got two big losses in November, like, are you really going to MF and burn a guy's house down when you've only known him for four or five months? I, I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, and I, and I think that, you know, as we all know, that has been his reputation as a recruiter. It's why he's gotten these guys. It's why he has continued to have relationships with players once they go to the league. It's because he has been able to sort of be that voice of reason. Again, he's going to have to crack down. He's going to have to be harsh at times if things don't work out. But I don't think he's ever going to sort of throw them out and make some of those, you know, demonstrative showings that Coach K would have. Um, because if you do, then, like I said, you're at risk of, of losing some of the trust that you've worked so hard to establish. And he doesn't have the bona fides to fall back on where guys are going to listen to his every word just because. Um, he has to prove that he understands them, that he's working with them, and that he can empathize with what they're going through. Um, the, the human element of this season and this team specifically, I think, is going to be fascinating. Obviously, there was a lot of that last year for an entirely opposite reason, but um, his interpersonal dealings, I think, are going to be paramount to Duke's success this season. It's interesting you mentioned what happens uh, if... Or, or maybe even when kind of Duke gets smacked in the face uh, for the first time under Coach Shire. You know, we've talked about it in the past, uh, especially in our championship series, the adversity that teams have to go through um, to, to to become a championship caliber team. And then Coach K obviously has always talked about that that Virginia loss in the ACC tournament where we lost by like 40 points uh, against Ralph Sampson and how that kind of propelled him. Um, do you think that that, that that needs to happen or that John's going to be kind of hungry right out the bat regardless. Yeah. He's going to be hungry regardless, but like, you know, coach K is the greatest coach of all time. And did he get smacked by 40 points, a couple of different games in his career, even as recently as, you know, a year or two ago. Yeah, he did. Um, and so I think that that's the thing is it's, it's having patience. It's all about having that patience um, because it's going to happen. Maybe it's this year, maybe it's next year. But they're going to lose games. Some some games are going to lose bad. Some games are going to shoot really poorly. Like it happens. Happens for the best coaches and it happens for first year head coaches. And so for him, again, it's going to be about not letting that snowball. That's his challenge because he's never had to keep a team from falling off the edge of the cliff before. Um, Coach K has always been able, you know, at least for the last 30 years, he's been able to go back and say like, hey, when things went seriously wrong, these are the different methods that I could have taken in the path. Which one of those do I think best fits the character of my team? John doesn't have that. And so he's going to try out some of those methods that he has seen firsthand as an assistant and as a player, and that some of them have worked and some of them haven't. Um, he might choose a motivational tactic that it doesn't work. That's okay. But he has to make those decisions to figure out in the long run what does work. Um, as much as Duke wants to be successful this year, this season, for me at least, as someone who covers the program, it has to be as much about forming the identity of what things look like long term. This is not a five-year hire. Like Duke wants Shire there for the long haul. And so you have to let him run the gamut of making mistakes. You have to let him run the gamut of having some of these losses. 
And you have to give him the patience and the grace to work through them, same as you did with Kay all those years ago. I know it's a different circumstance. I know that fans are different. Social media is louder, echo chamber, all that. Um, but if you don't let a coach go through bumps and hurdles, they're not going to come out on the other side of the mountaintop. And again, you know, I hate to keep comparing it to North Carolina, but like, you know, in February or in November of last year, North Carolina allows back to back opponents to shoot like 56% from two, make like 90. Like, I think the four of us probably kind of got out there and like run some pick and roll against <laughs> UNC's defense. Um, you know, but UNC needed to learn that that didn't work to learn what would work and to change things and to go on the tournament run that they did. Same deal with John this year. So um, patience, I think, is the name of the game, not just for looking at it on a season-long basis, but for extrapolating that out to what Duke and what I think Duke fans probably hope is the start of another you know, iconic tenure, uh, somebody who can really lead the program through the next 34 years of college basketball. Hopefully so. You know, we definitely live in a more impulsive and kind of instant gratification society now. So I'm, I'm hoping that some of that will will stick around and, um, you know, we can give John the, the benefit of the doubt and let him run his own race here. Um, but I know, you know, Brandon, we want to be, you know, conscious of your time. Again, we really appreciate you coming on here with us. Um, I'd like to give you kind of the space to kind of plug what you got going on. What's in the works for you? Where can the people find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter at Brendan R. Mark. Um, I'm trying to do a better job of staying off my phone all the time, uh, but I still try to be interactive. And if, you know, people have questions or comments. I like to think that I get back to them. Um, all my stories are over at theathletic.com. I'm obviously biased, but you know, if you are a sports fan, not just a Duke fan, but a sports fan in general, I think that we have the most comprehensive sports coverage in, in the globe. Probably you can get college basketball, you get NBA, you get NFL, you get college football, like you get European soccer, whatever you want, we've got it. Um, so definitely have all my stuff over there. And as far as things come down the pipeline, yeah, I, I think one of the things that's so interesting to me and that I'm working on a bigger piece about right now is, you know, just how different and loose is the program now compared to what it was, you know, at this time a year ago. And, uh, there are some cool specific examples of that, that I think, uh, hopefully I'll be able to share with people in the next month or so when we get closer to the season. But, um, it's a totally new era. Things are different. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always reminded of, uh, one of my mentors wrote a story when Matt Doherty was hired as UNC's coach about Dean Smith would never, Bill Guthridge would never, but Matt Doherty would. <laughs> um, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a similar way for Duke fans this year. Coach K would never, that would never have flown. But hey, maybe John Shire allows headbands. Maybe he brings a grad transfer for exactly, ACC Media that's... Day. So um, I, I think it'll be a really interesting and fun season. And I hope folks follow along however they choose. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, again, you know, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on. Um, for us, you know, the season's getting back. So we're going to kind of start to ramp up. We'll probably start doing weekly pods again. We got the media day coming up. Me and she will be there in Charlotte. Countdown to craziness is coming up. So it's really on this kind of cool part of the year where everyone's really excited about the season. No one's had any losses yet. We all nothing start but fresh. hope. Yeah. Nothing but hope. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she might come back on with an 18 and 0 prediction again nah, for us. Keep on the looks for that. Maybe um, next year. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at the, on the boards, thedevildiz.com. You can email us, thedevildizpod at gmail.com. Rate, review, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And uh, in the meantime, you know, keep the faces strong in the bird high. Go, dude.